0: Welcome to Flip the Script Podcast. This is transmission number 20. So today we're going to continue reading out of On Killing, written by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. Where we left off last time, we were talking flight or flight response, and he started getting into firing rates. And he ended up going on to say how in World War II, the firing rate between troops engaged in battle was between 15 and 20%. Only 15 to 20% of the soldiers engaged in battle were actually firing their weapons. And how the ones who couldn't fire the weapons did things to support the ones who could fire. So they were running to get ammo. They were loading weapons. They were running messages back and forth. They were tending to the wounded. So today... We're going to pick up and we're going to fast forward a little bit. We're going to start getting into the Civil War, right? So during the Civil War with their longbore muskets, the musket would come in like a oiled paper pack. You would stick it down in the muzzle and then, or you put the gun gunpowder in and you would stick the, the, the musket ball with the oiled paper on it down in the musket. It would... Fire up, and this thing would shoot pretty reliably with the oiled paper, right? Now, so the way that they would do those volleys of fire when they were fighting against the enemy is while you had one squad loading, the other one was firing, and then the next squad would fire while the other one's loading. So, this brings us into how they would train and drill. The way that they were able to get these uh, companies, battalions, platoons to work in, like a weld oiled machine was through drill. Now we see even drills even used up today in our military, especially in boot camp. So drill started back in the with the Greeks and the Romans, and then it really became popular and perfected in the Napoleonic period by Napoleon and our military uses it up to today. So the purpose of drill, right, was to make a unit work as one and to follow commands. So on the command of forward march, everybody in the platoon is going to take one step with their left foot. So their first foot that is going to go off as maybe left and then they're going to continue marching. The person that's leading the drill is going to be giving out a cadence to follow. It's like a rhythm or a beat. And so you're all taking the same step. So you're all moving at one time. So they started uh, practicing the drill and they would drill for hours and then they would do their rifle drills. So what this did was it created a certain response and was almost like an unconscious Reflex, right? It was actually called the um, conditioned reflex, right? This conditioned reflex that was sought after would be installed through drill. Now, there's this guy named John Masters who wrote about a perfect example of conditioned reflexes that he witnessed. And we're going to read an excerpt from that. And this was written by. John Masters on the road to Mandalay about World War II. This was what he witnessed from a machine gun team in World War II. The number one gunner was 17 years old. I knew him. His number two assistant gunner lay on the left side beside him, head towards the enemy, a loaded magazine in his hand, ready to whip onto the gun the moment the number one said charge. The number one started firing and the Japanese machine gun engaged them at close range. The number one got the first burst through the face and the neck, which killed him instantly. But he did not die where he lay. Behind the gun, he rolled over to the right, away from the gun, his left hand coming up in the death to tap his number two on the shoulder. In the signal, that means take over. The number two did not have to push the corpse away from the gun. It was already clear. So it says the takeover signal was drilled into the gunner to ensure that his vital weapon was never left unmanned. Should he ever have to leave? Its use in this circumstance is evidence of a conditioned reflex so powerful that it is completed without conscious thought as the last dying act of a soldier with a bullet through the brain. That's pretty uh, That's pretty intense that this conditioned reflex was so drilled into these gunners in World War II that when the gunner that was on the trigger was shot through the neck and in the head, as he died, he rolled over and he tapped his A-gunner for him to take over. That's the purpose of drill, is to make conditioned reflexes where when you hear a command or an automatic response to something. So we're going to continue. We're going to flip the script. It says the civil war weapon was usually a muzzle loading black powder rifled musket to fire. The weapon, a soldier would take a paper wrapped cartridge consisting of a bullet and some gunpowder. He would tear the cartridge open with his teeth, pour the powder down the barrel, set the bullet in the barrel, ram it home, prime the weapon with a percussion cap, cock, and fire. Since gravity was needed to pour the powder down the barrel, all this was done from a standing position. Fighting was a stand-up business. With the introduction of the percussion cap and the advent of oiled paper to wrap the cartridge in the weapons had become generally quite reliable even in wet weather. The oiled paper around the cartridge prevented the powder from becoming wet and the percussion cap ensured the reliable ignition source. The weapon would malfunction only if the ball was put in there before the powder, which was a rare mistake given the the amount of drill that these guys would do loading their weapons. right, so we're going to continue here. It says, These weapons were fast and accurate. A soldier could generally fire four or five rounds a minute, or while hunting with a rifled musket, the hit rate would have been at least as good as that achieved by the Prussians with smoothbore muskets when they got 25% hits at 225 yards, 40% hits at 150 yards, and 60% hits at 75 yards while firing at a 100-foot and 6-by-foot target. Thus, the 75 yards and the 200 man should be able to hit as many as 120 enemy soldiers in the first volley. If four shots were fired each minute, a regiment could possibly kill or wound 480 enemy soldiers in the first minute. All right. So a Civil War platoon within the first minute, It should be able to hit 480 enemy soldiers in the first minute of combat with the muskets, the way that they would do that. It says that each soldier should be able to fire off about, about four volleys, a fire a minute, right? Now, if you think about this now, so in the Civil War, you would be able to get off four shots in one minute. And now with the semi-automatic weapons, rifles, now semi-automatic means that it's not an automatic, right? So it's not that you hold down the trigger and rounds just keep coming out. It's a semi-automatic, which means that when you pull the trigger one round, comes out, the next one loads. But you still have to pull a trigger again before another round comes. Out. Okay. So that's as automatic as you just pull the trigger and it keeps firing, right? So that's we see those in machine guns. You don't see those in rifles. Of course they exist, but we don't generally use them. Uh you can't buy them as a civilian. And really you don't even come you really don't even see those too much in the military. I my experience in the military, I never saw an automatic uh, rifle. Right, I've seen the saw, which is like a belt-fed. It's like a belt-fed machine gun that you could hold like a rifle, but it's not in your traditional rifle. The saw is actual machine gun. Right, it's belt-fed. So unless you see weapons that get modified that are able to fire fully auto, I think the original M16s were full auto, but they changed that. And they no longer are now. The M4s are, you know, the most that they have is a, a three-round burst. You so you hold the trigger down long enough. You have three three rounds will shoot out. And that's it. You have to pull the trigger again. Generally, that's not used because it's inaccurate, right? It's def- definitely more accurate to fire single shots. So anyway, so in Civil War, you fired... You got four shots off in one minute. Now, with the semi-automatic weapons, you can get four shots in four seconds, less than four seconds, as quickly as reported could trigger four times. So that's an immense change in firepower, right? All right. So we're going to continue. We're going to flip the script. So it says the Civil War was, without a doubt, the best-trained, equipped soldier yet seen in the face of the earth. Then came the day of combat, the day for which he had drilled and marched for so long. And with that day came the destruction of all his preconceptions and delusions about what would happen. At first, the vision of a long line of men, with every man firing in unison, might hold true, if the leaders maintained control and if the terrain was not too broken. For a while, the battle could be one of volleys between regiments, but even while firing in regimental volleys, something was wrong. Terribly, frightfully wrong. An average engagement would take place at 30 yards, but instead of mowing down hundreds of enemy soldiers in the first minute, regiments killed one or two men per minute. And instead of the enemy formations disintegrating, In a hail of lead, they stood and exchanged fire for hours on end. Sooner or later, usually sooner, the long lines of firing volleys in unison would begin to break down, and in the midst of confusion, the smoke and thunder of the firing and the screams of the wounded soldiers would revert from cogs of a machine to individuals doing what comes naturally to them. Some load, some pass weapons, some tend to the wounded, some shout-out orders, a few run, A few wander off in the smoke or find the convenient low spot to sink into, and a few, very few, shoot. So just as we saw, as I explained in World War II, so same thing in the Civil War. Numerous historical references indicate that, like their World War II equivalents, most soldiers of the muzzle-loading musket era bruised themselves with other tasks during battle. For example, the image of a line soldier standing and firing at the enemy is believed by this vivid account of Civil War veteran describing the Battle of Anaheim in Griffith's book. Now it's the pinch. Men and officers are fused into a common mass. In the frantic struggle to shoot fast, everybody tears cartridges, loads, passes guns, or shoots. Men are falling in their places and running back into the cornstalks. This is an image of battle that can be seen over and over again in Marshall's World War II work and in his account of Civil War battle. We see that only a few men actually fire at the enemy, while others gather and prepare ammo, load weapons, pass weapons, or fall back into the obscurity of the anonymity of cover. This was typical of World War One, World War II. Civil War era, you had a certain group of men, soldiers that were able to fire the weapons, and the other ones they supported the ones who could fire. As we're going to see as we continue in this book, this is changes throughout history. This changes up when we get into the Vietnam era and after, right? When they start changing training tactics. And then we start seeing that firing rates begin to increase. But so, as you see in the Civil War, between 15 and 20% of men are able to fire, and everybody else either supports those guys by loading weapons, getting more ammo for them, tending to the wounded, giving out orders, sending messages. Some try to wait it out, run, sink down to a foxhole, and those are far and few. Between most of the soldiers, try to do their part in supporting the guys. Who are fighting in the battle, loading, retrieving ammo, sending messages, attending to the wounded. Alright. So we're gonna continue. We're gonna flip the script. It says the process of some men electing to load and provide support for those who are willing to shoot the enemy appears to have been the norm rather than the exception. Those who did fire and were the beneficiary of all this support can be seen in countless reports collected by Griffith in which individual Civil War soldiers fired 100, 200, or even incredible 400 rounds of ammunition in a battle. This is a period when the standard issue of ammunition was only 40 rounds, with a weapon that became so fouled as it's useless without cleaning after firing about 40 shots. The extra ammunition and muskets must have been supplied and loaded by the fire's less aggressive comrades. You had some... Civil War s- soldiers were shooting up to four, 400 rounds in battle at a time when a typical uh, battle load for a Civil War soldier was only 40 rounds, right? So that means that these guys were getting ammo, getting weapons from guys that weren't firing or that couldn't fire, or didn't have it in him for whatever reason. These guys were loading weapons and passing them off to the guys who could fire. So that's why you had guys shooting an extraordinary amount of rounds when that typically was not made to happen, right? Your weapons were, those weapons needed to be cleaned, right? After at a certain amount of time, but some guys are shooting 40, 400 rounds. So they're getting weapons, they're getting their ammos being loaded by soldiers who were not able to fire their weapons. And so they're passing it off to the guys who are, right? All right, so we're going to continue. Goes aside from the firing over the enemy's heads or loading and supporting those who were willing to fire, there was another option understood and says that the man falls and disappears. Who knows whether it was a bullet or the fear of advancing struck him? Richard Gabriel, one of the foremost writers and the first of the military psychology in our generation, notes that in engagements the size of Waterloo or Sedan, the opportunity for a soldier not to fire or to refuse to. Press on an attack by merely falling down and remaining in the mud was too obvious for shaken men under fire to ignore. Indeed, the temptation must have been great, and many must have done so. Yet, despite the obvious options of firing over the enemy's head, which is posturing, a type of flight or flight, and a widely accepted option of loading and supporting those who were willing to fire, a limited kind of fighting, evidence exists that during black powder battles Thousands of soldiers elected to pass passively submit to both the enemy and their leaders through fake or mock firing. The best indicator of this tendency toward mock firing can be found in the multiply loaded weapons found after Civil War battles. That's interesting. So I say that there's this other option of what soldiers who couldn't fire do. And that is that they uh, either pretend to be wounded or they pretend to fire. And they said that they, after Civil War battles, they would find uh, rifles that would have multiple rounds loaded in them. So that means that a soldier would load a round, pretend to fire, load it again, pretend to fire, load it again, pretend to fire. All right, so we're going to continue. We're coming up to a section here that is titled Dilemma. Of the discarded weapons. So, the author of a Civil War Collector's Encyclopedia tells us after the battle in Gettysburg, 27,574 muskets were recovered from the battlefield. Of these, nearly 90% or 24,000 of these loaded muskets were found to be loaded more than once, and 6,000 of the multiply loaded weapons had from 3 to 10 rounds loaded in the barrel. One weapon had been loaded 23 times. Why then were there so many loaded weapons available on the battlefield? And why did at least 12,000 soldiers misload their weapons in combat? A loaded weapon was a precious commodity in the black powder battlefield. During the stand-up, face-to-face, short-range battles of this era, a weapon should have been loaded for only a fraction of the time in battle. More than 95% of the time was spent loading the weapon, and less than 5% in firing it. If most soldiers were desperately attempting to kill as quickly and efficiently as they could, then 95% should have been shot and, with an empty weapon in their hand, and any loaded, cocked, and primed weapon dropped on the battlefield should have been snatched up from wounded or dead comrades and fired. There were many who were shot while charging the enemy or were casualties of artillery outside the musket range, and these individuals would never have had an opportunity to fire their weapons, but they hardly represent 95% of all casualties. If there is a desperate need in all soldiers to fire their weapons in combat, then many of these men should have died with an empty weapon, and as an ebb and flow of battle pressed over these weapons, many of them should have been picked up and fired at the enemy. The obvious conclusion is that most soldiers were not trying to kill the enemy. Most of them appeared to have not even wanted to fire at the enemy's general direction. As Marshall observed, most soldiers seemed to have an inner resistance to firing their weapons in combat. The point here is that the resistance appears to have existed long before Marshall discovered it. And this resistance is the reason for many, if not most, of the multiply loaded weapons. The physical necessity for muzzle loaders to load from a standing position combined with the shoulder-to-shoulder massed firing line so beloved by the officers in this era presented a situation in which unlike it was very difficult for a man to disguise the fact that he was not shooting. And in this volley fire situation, the multiple surveillance of authorities and peers must have created an intense pressure to fire. There was not any isolation of dispersion of the modern battlefield. To hide non-participants during volley fire, this very action was obvious to those comrades who stood shoulder to shoulder with them. If a man truly was not able or willing to fire, the only way he could disguise his lack of participation was to load his weapon, tear cartridge, pour powder, set a bullet, ram it home, prime and cock, bring it to his shoulder and then not actually fire, possibly even mimicking the recoil of his weapon when somebody nearby fired. Here was the epitome of the industrious soldier. Carefully and steadily loading his weapon in the midst of turmoil, scream, smoke, and battle. No action of his was discernible as being something other than that which his superiors and comrades would not find commendable. All right. In the formations of the battlefield and the Civil War, you stood shoulder to shoulder with your platoon. And that a guy not firing would be obvious to everybody around him. So then how do you account for the multiply loaded weapons and weapons that have not been fired? What they would do is they would load their weapon, bring it to their shoulder, pretend to fire, even pretend to feel the recoil when somebody next to them fired, and they would load the weapon again. That's how they got away with not actually firing. You know, we can't say whether this was like a conscious decision by the soldiers or if this uh, was an automatic response or their subconscious taking over and who knows what the situation was. But a lot of these guys, they, a lot of the non-firers, they didn't want to show that they couldn't fire. So they just pretended that they could fire. So let's flip the script. The amazing thing about these soldiers who failed to fire is that they did so in direct opposition to the mind-numbing, repetitive drills of that area. How then did the Civil War soldiers consistently fail their drill masters when it came to an all-important loading drill? Some may argue that these multiple loads were simply mistakes and that these weapons were discarded because they were misloaded. But if in the fog of war, despite all the endless hours of training, you do accidentally double load a musket, you shoot it anyway, and the first load simply pushes out the second load. In the rare event that the weapon is actually jammed or non-functional in some manner, you simply drop it and pick up another. But that is not what happened here. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why was firing the only step that was skipped? How could at least 12,000 men from both sides of all units make the same exact mistake? Did 12,000 soldiers at Gettysburg, dazed and confused in the shock of battle, accidentally double load their weapons? And when were all 12,000 of them killed before they could fire their weapons? Or did all 12,000 of them discard these weapons for some reason and then pick up others? And why did 6,000 or more go on to load their weapons yet again and still not fire? Some may have been mistakes and some may have been caused by bad powder but I believe that the only possible explanation for the vast majority of the incidents is the same factor that prevented 80-85% to of World War II soldiers from firing at the enemy. The fact that these Civil War soldiers overcame their powerful conditioning to fire through drill clearly demonstrates the impact of powerful instinctive forces and supreme acts of moral will. If Marshall did not ask the soldiers immediately after battle in World War II, he would have never known the amazing ineffectiveness of our fire. In the same way, since no one asked the soldiers in the Civil War or any other war prior to World War II, we not know the effectiveness of fire. What we can do is extrapolate from the available data, and the available data indicates that at least half of the soldiers in black powder battles did not fire their weapons, and only in minute percentage of those who did fire aimed to kill the enemy. Now we can begin to fully understand the reasoning underlying Paddy Griffith's discovery of an average regimental hit rate of one or two men per minute in firefights of the Black Powder era. And we see that these figures strongly support Marshall's findings with the rifled muskets in that area and potential hit rate that was at least as high as that achieved by the Prussians with smoothbore muskets when... It got 60% hits at 75 yards, but the reality was a minute fraction of this. Griffith's figures make a perfect sense of firing during these wars, as in World War II, only a small percentage of the musketeers in the regimental firing line were actually attempting to shoot at the enemy, while the rest stood in line firing above the enemy's heads or did not fire at all. That's pretty interesting. The firing rates in the Civil War should have been a lot more imagine what the casualty rate would have been if you had 95% firing rate from these soldiers you now you're having between 20 and 15% of the troops that are actually able to fire the other ones so let, let me correct myself between 15 and 20% that were actually wanted to aim their weapons at the enemy You had other ones who did fire their weapons but they would fire over the enemy and then you had those who pretended to fire or couldn't fire, and they passed off their weapons, loaded ammo, did whatever they can to support the guys who would fire. so imagine if ninety percent of the troops were able to engage the enemy, and what that casualty rate would have looked like it would have been a lot more casualties. We're gonna read later on in the book what the turning point was in the firing rate in combat was how they trained and how they changed their training tactics and when they would, the targets that they would shoot at. So prior to, I would say, Vietnam, I might have changed to Vietnam. i will to have to read the book. I don't remember exactly what it is. But they went from shooting at regular targets, just paper targets, to silhouettes of what a human would look like. So it would be like from the chest up, a silhouette and look like a a person and that's what changed the firing rates because then people got desensitized so that increased the firing rate but we'll get into that in this book later on for right now that is where we're going to leave off this is pretty interesting stuff so if you enjoy this podcast please hit the like button hit the share share it with your friends get the word out And that's Flip the Script Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Flip the Script, out.